On this episode of A New York Minute in History, we take a crack at exploring the early days of baseball. I would never want the Abner Douglas story to go away because there's, as we keep on talking about, there's great meaning to it. Whether it's uh, that or chopping down a cherry tree, you know, those myths are important parts of, of who we are. There is something about catching a ball that's tossed to you or smacking a ball with your hand or with a bat that gives enormous pleasure, and it's this instinctual thing that we can't date. Join us as we explore how the game developed in New York and grew into America's pastime. Support for this program comes from the William G. Pomeroy Foundation, which helps people celebrate their community's history by providing grants for historic roadside markers and plaques. You've probably heard of our New York State Historic Marker Grant Program, but did you know that we also offer several other marker grant programs? Here in the Empire State and across the country, these programs include commemorating women's suffrage, historic canals, folklore, and sites on the National Register of Historic Places. Our grants are available to local, state, and federal government entities, nonprofit academic institutions, and 501c3 organizations. Since 2006, we have funded nearly 900 signs in 12 states across all our programs. To apply for a marker at no cost to you, or to learn more about the Foundation's grant programs, visit wgpfoundation.org. That's wgpfoundation.org. Welcome to A New York Minute in History, a podcast about the history of New York and the unique tales of New Yorkers. I'm Devin Lander, the New York State historian. And I'm Lauren Roberts, the historian for Saratoga County. While talking about history should be fun, entertaining, and engaging, hopefully it is since we're doing a podcast on it, sometimes reliving and reenacting the past can be the best way to interpret history. In that spirit, playing vintage baseball is just one of the ways we're going to look back on America's pastime in this episode. On assignment for a New York Minute in History, WAMC's Jesse King caught a recent doubleheader between the Fleischmann's Mountain Athletic Club and the Brooklyn Atlantics. We're going to get started, folks. Be aware of all the balls. You guys are all in play right here, so we'll try to be careful about you know being around you, but be alive. This is a live game. Mountain Athletic Club Captain Colin Miller directs fans via megaphone as they park folding chairs along the edge of a field. The original Mountain Athletic Club, or MAC, was founded in 1895 in Griffin's Corners, New York. But today's edition is in Gramsville in Sullivan County. Aside from the bases, a pitcher's box, and a makeshift hay backstop, the field is bare. Miller, a professional forester, introduces himself as Stumpy before the bat toss, while his competitor, English teacher and Atlantic's captain Frank Van Zant, goes by Shakespeare. You just have to be very careful not to do something extremely stupid on the field, because that's what your nickname's going to be based on. We had a fellow named Crawler on his first day on the field. He crawled to second base, and he was kind of a night crawler also, so it was... It was apt, but it was kind of based on a stupid thing that he did on the field. 
Van Zant says the original Atlantic Baseball Club was founded in 1855. Back then, baseball wasn't yet a compound word, and the Atlantic's Don White shirts have A, B, B, C stitched across the front. They play by the rules of 1864, one of two years the Atlantics went undefeated as national champions. Van Zant says depending on who you ask, the club was a precursor to the Brooklyn Dodgers and missed a chance to become one of the first professional teams in 1871. Professionalism was very controversial, the same way that professionalism is controversial for college athletes today. Should we pay them? Should we not pay them? A year later, they tried to recoup that, and they did become professional, but they didn't have the players to justify it, and they were a very poor professional team for a period of time until they sort of fell out of practice. Today, the Atlantics are in full form for game one. By 1864 rules, all pitches or hurls are underhand, and the batter or striker is out if the ball is caught on the fly or on the first bounce. That could be because there are no gloves. Players catch the ball with their bare hands, sometimes at their peril. Daisy cutters, now known as grounders, are common. Fouls don't count as strikes, and three balls make a walk. Umpire Jeff Fry stands to the side of the striker, dressed in a shirt vest and a top hat while calling pitches as he pleases. When I feel the pitcher's thrown too many balls, I give a warning to the pitcher that lets him know anything he throws that I feel is a ball. After that, I'm going to call a ball. Same thing with the batter. If the pitcher's throwing strikes, the batter's just standing there. I give a warning to the striker, which means any pitch that comes in after that that I feel is a strike, I'm going to call a strike. Fire him in there. She's recording. Van Zant says hurlers no longer had to throw underhand in the 1880s, and clubs like the Providence Grays made overhand pitching the norm. The Max Archie Byruk says fielders were wearing gloves by 1895, although they had little padding and no webbing. Byruk's been playing vintage baseball for about 20 years, goes by lumberman with his teammates, and usually makes a new bat before each game at his sawmill. For the era we play today, we're only allowed two and a half inch barrel. It's got to be over an inch on the handle. And then the second game we played, you can go up to two and three quarter. Still no less than an inch. It could be 42 inches long, which nobody could ever swing. Hits are louder in game two, which uses the max 1895 rules and a livelier ball. Catches on the first bounce no longer result in outs, but foul balls hit off a bunt or caught by the catcher are strikes. Atlantic's co-captain Dean Emma, a.k.a. Dream Bucket, explains the Red Stockings won 81 straight games when they first started paying stars, before, he notes, falling to the Atlantic's 8-7 in an 11-inning game in 1870. The finest game ever played. That was how it was written by the journalists. Tag, 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 tag. Go, it's bouncing, go. Yeah, so before 1869, they were getting paid underneath the table. And, ga you know, gamblers would be like, I'll give you 100 bucks if you guys beat this team. That was pretty well known. As Van Zan explained, the Atlantics initially passed on professionalism, but the Mac became a semi-pro team. Miller says owners Julius and Max Fleischmanns eventually got involved with the Cincinnati Reds and used the Mac as a spring training for Reds players. Miller says the Mac bankrolled five of the Chicago White Sox hitless wonders in 1906, as well as Hall of Famers Honus Wagner and Miller Huggins. Miller Huggins actually played under a the name Proctor. At the time, he was an NCAA athlete, and he was afraid he would lose his uh, scholarship money if he got paid to play by the Fleischmann, so he played under the name Proctor. The Mac continued in Griffin's Corners until 1913, when the village changed its name to Fleischmann's. Now, today is a golden era to be a baseball fan. You can watch games in HD on your smartphone and follow box scores in real time, with Major League Baseball now a billion-dollar industry. 
So why play vintage baseball? Van Zant says there are hundreds of teams across the country, and the Atlantics play over 40 games a season. Fan Vivian Ginsburg says she wouldn't miss it. They're like baseball reenactors. Whoa, heads up! Oh, save that ball. It's a $12 ball. <laughs> Players like Van Zant and Miller say it's about keeping baseball history alive. Like their original counterparts, today's vintage baseball teams get people outside and having fun. It's very hard to get a sore attitude when you're on the field. It, there's, it's really enjoyable. Yeah, I, I, I liken it to sort of like a baseball subculture. I would say a fraternity, but we actually have co-ed. The Atlantics are one of the Mac's toughest outs. By the end of this day, the ABBC have swept the bill, taking Game 1 16-9 and Game 2 20-7 in seven innings. The Mountain Athletic Club still calls its original park in Fleischmann's home. The Brooklyn Atlantics play their home games on Long Island at the Smithtown Historical Society. All you need to attend is a temporary trip back in time. And that was WAMC's Jesse King on assignment for a New York Minute in History. To help us better understand how baseball got started in the United States and how the game developed in the 19th century, we made a call to the bullpen. And spoke with a fellow historian who might have one of the coolest jobs in our field. I'm John Thorne, the official historian of Major League Baseball. And for today's topic, I suppose that the book of mine that's most relevant is Baseball in the Garden of Eden, which was published by Simon & Schuster in 2011 and is still available. Let's go back as far as we can to the origins. As you noted, um, no baseball wasn't invented anywhere specifically. But can you talk a little bit about how baseball developed in the, the very early years? Well, how early do you want to go? We have records uh, on Egyptian tombs of the pharaoh hitting the ball for the honor of Tutmos. So bat and ball games do go back 4,500 years and more. And, of course, there's no specific origin date, as, as I said to you earlier, what is the origin of joy? Because uh, there is something about catching a ball that's tossed to you or smacking a ball with your hand or with a bat that gives enormous pleasure. And it's this instinctual thing that we can't date. What about organized baseball? Obviously, it uh, has its origins in previous games like cricket, things like that. But um, the game that we know as baseball where, where, I guess, when, roughly, again, we, we can't say a specific year, but when did that start to gain popularity? Well, we had baseball games played on holidays, July 4th notably. Uh, baseball's season coincides with that of the farm. We have a planting-to-harvest cycle that explains uh, April to October. The uh, earliest record that we have of baseball in print dates to 1744 with John Newberry's A Little Pretty Pocketbook published in England and then pirated in the U.S. in 1762. And again in 1787, the Isaiah Thomas edition, which exists in several copies in institutions. The earliest date that we have for baseball being played in North America exists in the Prohibition of baseball within 80 yards of a newly erected church in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, 
that dates to 1791. We also have a diary of a Princeton student, John Ray Smith, who uh, complained of being fatigued after playing a game of baseball, B-A-S-T-E ball, which is a fairly common alternate spelling in the 18th century. In New York by 1845, we have the Knickerbocker Baseball Club, and specifically Alexander Cartwright, who is still sometimes referred to as the father of baseball. Can you explain why that would be and what the uh, Knickerbocker rules were? Well, the Knickerbockers were outstanding publicists and not such good baseball players. Because they endured past the demise of earlier baseball clubs in New York, they came to be known as the Pioneer Club, though the Knickerbocker rules of 1845 merely capitulated the rules as had previously been put down on paper by the New York or Gotham Club in 1837. In fact, the very same man who penned the 1837 rules became a member of the Knickerbockers in 1845 and wrote the rules for them, and that's William Rufus Wheaton. Those rules, um, so they start in 1845, the first published in 1848, and really it's not a big deal. Uh, it's not like it caught on immediately. And even in the early 1850s, you have a number of different clubs playing with some different rules. That's Tom Schieber, senior curator at the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. Which, as we will detail later, has a complicated history as the so-called birthplace of baseball. Regardless of the ambiguity, Tom showed us some artifacts from the museum's collection and detailed the Knickerbocker rules. But when they were published nationally, First in Porter's Spirit of the Times, which is a New York-based paper, and, and then the New York Clipper, which is actually the entertainment and uh, athletic weekly. Um, that's kind of a good one-two punch where, wow, everybody said, oh, this is, these are the rules. And they've, someone wrote them down. And probably a lot of people read them saying, oh, that's not how we play baseball. But let's try this. I mean, this national newspaper mentioned this, why don't we give it a try? So some of the more oddball rules at the time, like things like the, the rules having to do with the creation of foul territory. Oh, well, that's, uh, that's novel, especially in the early 1850s. So that, that, that's rather novel. Um, that's actually kind of useful because then we don't have to have a giant plot of land. We can actually be kind of in a corner, right? We don't have to worry about a whole portion of, of land. Or later on, that's really good for spectators. The spectators can be closer to the game because of foul territory. Alexander Cartwright had as much to do with the invention of baseball or the creation of its rules as you or I. The Cartwright myth was propagated to counter the Doubleday myth. Now, very few people any longer believe that Abner Doubleday invented baseball on a sunny afternoon in Cooperstown, New York, in, 19, in 1839 or 1840, the uh, summer of Tippecanoe and Tyler II, as, as Abner Graves, his boyhood teammate, recalled it. The Doubleday story was so pockmarked and so silly that the uh, heirs of Alexander Cartwright, notably uh, son Bruce, put forward this theory that Cartwright was the true inventor. Both Doubleday and Cartwright went to their graves not knowing they had invented baseball. <laughs> yeah, and I wanted to get into the, the Abner Doubleday myth, too, um, and, and where that came from and the connection to Cooperstown. And then, so maybe we should do that now. Um, 
you know, we know that the myth is just that, a myth, um, but do we know why it came about and what, did Abner Doubleday have any connection to organized baseball and why the the idea that later came to bring the Hall of Fame to Cooperstown? It's a very long story, <laughs> and uh, I'll try to encapsulate it for you. Uh, a long-term Cooperstown resident named Abner Graves claimed that he saw Doubleday uh, create the game, uh, create the diamond by uh, diagramming it with a stick in the in the sand. And uh, he may have had the wrong Abner Doubleday because there were several of them. In fact, Abner was at West Point as a cadet without the privilege of leave in the years 1839 and 40, so he could not have been in Cooperstown, let alone invented baseball. Yet Graves wrote a letter to a commission that had been established by Albert Spaulding, chaired by Abraham G. Mills, who was Spaulding's longtime friend and a big figure in National League history. And the outcome after three years of desultory research was that the Graves letter provided the commission with the single document that they could rest their conclusions upon. Even Mills later confessed that he thought the Graves letter was silly and that the commission's entire mission was stupid. But uh, it held. So the purported invention of baseball in Cooperstown led to the creation of a field being constructed there in 1920 and then expanded during the WPA. And there was a move to honor Major League Baseball today by creating a museum in the place where baseball was born. And Cooperstown seemed as good a place as any, although, in fact, Hoboken might have been better or Manhattan might have been better. It's interesting, and uh, <laughs> and the Doubleday Field is still there, obviously. And, it's and, still there, yeah. and and those who who would advocate for uh, pulling up stakes and saying that the Hall of Fame should not be in Cooperstown, but instead in Hoboken or Manhattan, missed the point. The Hall of Fame is now what eighty years old, ninety years old, going on uh, going on its second century in in twenty thirty nine. So it's not going anywhere, and the fact that its foundation is built on sand doesn't mean that the institution does not by now have a history all its own. Well, I have a pretty important document that has to do with why you guys came to Cooperstown Yes, uh, to do this. Um, these are the letters that a gentleman named Abner Graves wrote um, regarding his recollections about the origins of the game of baseball. So to give you a quick, try to make this as quick as possible, background as to what occurred, and people often ask, why, why is the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, and what does it have to do with that? Well, what happened was, around the turn of the century, Albert Spaulding, who had been a former baseball pitcher, great baseball pitcher, who quit at the peak of his career to get into the sporting goods business. Uh, he thought there was more money to be made than that, and he was right. He was asked to give a talk at the YMCA in Springfield, Massachusetts, where, incidentally, basketball really was invented. And he, in preparing a talk about baseball history, he wrote a bunch of letters to people who were old-timers and said, hey, what do you know about the origins of baseball? I really think that it uh, originated from early bat and ball games in the U.S. But other people don't necessarily think that. And Henry Chadwick, who's a big-time baseball writer starting in the 1850s and an Englishman by birth, um, he felt it came from England. 
and Albert Spalding in this incredibly jingoist height of jingoism at this point was just horrifically offended by this. Therefore, it couldn't be true. This is the logic was, I'm offended, therefore it can't possibly be true. So he gave his talk, but then he thought, you know what, I really need to figure this out rather, uh, instead of piecemeal by writing a couple friends, I need to figure this out. So he, through his Spalding baseball guide and through the media, he sent out a question saying, if you know anything about the words of baseball, please write it in. We have a little bit of a controversy about it. Let's try and figure it out. That was in 1905. And he created a commission of blue ribbon panelists um, who, by the way, he handpicked who were by no means objective. When he wrote to various individuals and they wrote back and said, yeah, I think it probably did come from uh, America, those guys were asked to be on this uh, panel. But the ones who said, you know what, it might have come from England, they were never contacted again. So it was a setup job from the very get-go. But he had his assistant, James Sullivan, be sort of the secretary of this commission, and people would write in, oh, here's what I think. And he gathered it all up. And eventually was created a report to give to the Blue Ribbon panelists who weren't doing any work at all. They're just big name guys. Well, one letter that came in, and this is the one by Abner Graves in 1905. He's a miner out of Colorado, but he happened to be an Akron at the time. He wrote a recollection that he had 60 some odd years earlier. He was a very small boy in Cooperstown that Abner Doubleday, that famous guy who became a Civil War general, invented the game, and I was there, or actually, I think his first letter actually sort of talks about not necessarily being there, but then the second letter that he wrote about it, because they asked him to tell him more, he kind of said, oh, I'll make myself a little bit more part of the story, <laughs> so he said he was there, um, but he said, you know, th th this guy came over, and he explained how to play this game. Now, even Abner Graves wasn't saying he came out of thin air. He said, we were playing bat and ball games, and he just had a, some improvements on it, and that, that they were critical improvements, and that made it baseball. So... There were lots of people that wrote in, but ultimately the commission thought that this was the best one to put forward. So they created a, a report that they gave to the members of the Blue Ribbon panel that was 60-some-odd pages, of which all but a page and a half were supporting American birth of baseball. And a page and a half was a rebuttal by Henry Chapman. It was just buried. And the commission basically said, according to the best evidence available, they sort of, they sort of hedged their bets, according to the best evidence available, we're going with the recollections of Abner Graves about Abner Doubleday, big name Abner in the 19th century, um, that baseball was invented uh, in 1839 in Cooperstown, New York. And um, this, is, this is the smoking gun. These, these, uh, this is the first letter, and there was a, a second letter that came. So the idea being that um, Abner Doubleday lived in Cooperstown? And well, that he came to Cooperstown for whatever reason, in 1908, the commission published these findings and said, okay, here's what we figured out, Cooperstown 1839. So it took a couple of years, and almost immediately it was debunked. So there's one major problem that is often pointed to, which is that Abner Doubleday went to West Point, and that he would have been a freshman at this time, and that would have meant he's off campus as a freshman, which you cannot be at that point at West Point. He'd been AWOL, he wouldn't have done that. What modern, some modern historians have um, figured out is actually there was a Doubleday family in Cooperstown. So Abner Doubleday, the one we're talking about, was really a Boston spa guy. But he had cousins in Cooperstown. And one of his cousins', cousins name, believe it or not, was Abner Doubleday. So not only is Abner a big name, but apparently the Doubledays were not particularly innovative with their naming of their kids. So there's yet a, another guy named Abner Doubleday. And maybe Abner Graves mixed up 
the Abner Doubleday that was a Cooperstown guy and which would have been closer in age to him. Abner Doubleday, the Civil War general, when he's talking to the six-year-old or so, Abner Graves would have been, you know, 16, 17, I don't know, but he would have been much older, which is a little bit of a bizarre idea that this older kid would be teaching these really young kids. So, you know, maybe Abner Graves have, there's a kernel of truth here. You know, when you're six years old and someone teaches you a new game, oh my gosh, they've invented it. And somehow that becomes an invention moment. But additionally, what if I were to say to you, uh, you, you, you know, tell us about your, uh, some, some kid you knew in second grade. And it's, well, I knew a kid named uh, Taylor Swift. And it's like, oh, it must be that famous Taylor Swift when maybe it was a different Taylor Swift. But 65 years later, you go, no, it's got to be the same Taylor Swift, right? So maybe there, he's thinking that. So, you know, the, there, a lot of people think that this whole thing is, whole, is completely made up. I think he's telling what he envisions is the truth. It's 60-something years later. And he can get mixed up, and um, there's some question about how much he was in his right mind anyway. He ended up in, in asylum, uh, so, you know, I don't know what was going on there. But, you know, there's, there could be a lot of truth in what ends up being a myth. It, it never was the, the case. Now we, we find the origins of the Doubleday myth, mm -hmm. and possibly the other Doubleday. Right. More than one. Um, that would be a quadruple day. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But... Um, how did the Hall of Fame end up here? Right. So very soon after the 1908 announcement that, hey, we figured out when baseball was invented, it was debunked. But nobody would pay attention to the debunking. The story really held. And honestly, if you walk down the street, and I'm not talking about walk down the street from Cooperstown, walk down the street in, in anywhere USA and ask people, have you ever heard of Abner Doubleday? The small percentage that have are going to say, oh, yeah, this guy who invented baseball. That, that myth has lasted and continues to last. Well, he was certainly going strong in the 1930s when this country was in the midst of a depression. And this town was hurting like other towns as well. Uh, but a very wealthy individual named Stephen Clark, who uh, was also a very uh, philanthropic gentleman, he thought perhaps a way to help out the town would be, let's parlay this whole thing about us being the birthplace of baseball into a museum. How about a baseball museum? And he had a little collection. And, uh, and started lobbying for people to donate things. And, and the idea initially was a baseball museum. Very quickly thereafter, the idea came along, well, what if we did a Hall of Fame with that? Um, the only Hall of Fame that was a physical Hall of Fame at that time was the Hall of Fame of Great Americans. The phrase Hall of Fame, though, was a, was a sort of an ethereal concept of you've, you've reached some level of fame, literally. Um, but they said, well, let's do a baseball Hall of Fame. We'll have the greats of the greats honored in the museum. So it was museum first. And then, well, why don't we put a Hall of Fame in the museum? So they did. And it was not only supported wonderfully well by uh, Stephen Clark, uh, but also Major League Baseball, specifically the National American Leagues, uh, were all in on this. This was great. And great ball players who were requested, could you help us with artifacts? They were all for it. And all this was leading up to a moment in 18, for 1939, which would have been the 100th anniversary of the supposed invention of baseball. So in the mid-1930s, this is going on, but they're eyeballing this big centennial that's coming up. So uh, a lot of people think we started in 1939. That's when we had this big celebration here in Cooperstown to celebrate that 100th anniversary, and we brought in all these ball players. Um, so that was a big festive moment. But actually, the, the museum started in the mid-1930s. But it was tied to this commission's idea and the fact that this country was in a depression, and it would be perhaps a good way to 
to bring in tourists. So uh, the Doubleday Field doesn't come after the museum. It actually came before. Yeah. Now, the idea that that is where is often purported, well, that, and that's actually the physical exact location where baseball was not invented or invented, however you want to look at it, um, is also not true. So the place where Abner Graves claims baseball was invented, the physical tiny plot of land where it was drawn out on the ground, is not where Doubleday Field is. So I guess the way we, we, we put it, Doubleday Field is not the location that baseball was not invented. <laughs> so now we know at least one of the stories of how baseball was created and why the Hall of Fame is in Cooperstown. However it happened, the game was becoming more popular in the 1800s. But who was playing it? At first, your white-collar workers, sometimes referred to in accounts of the early game as gentlemen. They weren't gentlemen. They just had the leisure time available to play ball either very early in the morning uh, before going to work or in the afternoons of, of long summer days because the counting houses uh, closed by 3 p.m. So these were white-collar workers, lawyers, bankers, clerks, and what caught them up in baseball was the uh, health movement that had first launched in New York with the creation of gymnasiums, that if you had these sallow, uh, flabby clerks, uh, they would be subject to the next wave of um, typhoid or yellow fever because the the epidemics came with some regularity. There was a great one in 1822, which killed thousands, another in 1833, another in 1845, another in 1849. So the idea was to build up physical strength through exercise. And for many, baseball seemed a more entertaining way than lifting weights or doing calisthenics. And when did it change to become more of a blue-collar uh, enterprise? That's, that's the great turning point, and it comes in the mid-1850s with the teams from Brooklyn. The Excelsiors were the first uh, Brooklyn team, and they were modeled on the Knickerbockers in that they were clerks, they were white-collar workers who played ball with their eyes set on the banquet and the uh, jolly toasts that would occur afterwards uh, with the members of the opposing team. Victory was not important. With the creation of the Eckfords, the Atlantics, um, the Putnams to a lesser extent, uh, you, you had Brooklyn teams that set out to win. And in order to win, they recruited men who were not of the social class of the Knickerbockers and Excelsiors by introducing... Um, shipwrights by introducing uh, day laborers into the game. They decided that victory was more important than conviviality. So these were essentially ringers that they would recruit and uh, help them well, win. Well, one could argue that they were ringers, except that the entire team was composed of ringers. The Knickerbockers were not above hiring a ringer. The Knickerbockers brought in uh, Lou Wadsworth, they brought in uh, Pinckney. These were the two great players of the 50s whom the Knickerbockers raided from the Gothams. And uh, when the Atlantics formed, they did not see themselves as uh, gentlemen with occasional ringers. They saw themselves as working men. So this is the 1850s. Uh, this brings us to the kind of logical question of 
1861. What was the effect of the Civil War on baseball? This is greatly misunderstood. The Civil War uh, disrupted uh, baseball play. There were no leagues as yet. There were no professional leagues for sure. There weren't even avowedly professional teams, although under-the-table payments had already entered the game by 1858-59. The schedule of games was reduced because the available players were reduced. Many of them had gone off into the military. The myth that has been created is that in the uh, prison camps, the northern soldiers exposed the Confederate soldiers to uh, this new northern game called baseball, and then it swept the nation. Baseball was a regional pastime. But it was uh, it existed in various forms in various regions. There was a different game being played in New England from that being played in New York. There was a different game being played in Philadelphia. There was a different game being played in Georgia. They were all, by my lights, baseball. If we think of baseball as a game of bat and ball with opposing sides, a pitcher, a batter, and bases run in a circular fashion. So baseball was already everywhere before the Civil War. And the idea that returning veterans spread the game is poppycock. So you mentioned uh, professionalization of of the game. Uh, when did that really start to happen, and and what was the leading reason for that or force behind it? Well, we had under the table payments to players like Jim Creighton, uh, the Excelsiors, and George Flanley in eighteen fifty nine, eighteen sixty. There were also deadhead jobs given by the political syndicates that controlled other clubs, like the Mutuals of New York, which were Boss Tweed connected. And in Brooklyn in 1862, a man named Kamire created the first enclosed ballpark, and it was not to permit home runs to be hit over the fence. It was to permit admission to be charged. And once the players saw that they got a nice playing field, they played for nothing in this enclosed field. But after a while, it dawned on them that somebody was making money on their labors. So they demanded a cut. Kamire increased the charge of admission from $0.10 to $0.25 so that the players could share in the proceeds. And these shared proceeds were the foundation of professionalism in the mid-1860s. These gate receipt sharing clubs were known as cooperative nines. And the amount of money that could be raised from a particular game, for example, when the Red Stockings played the Atlantics on June 14, 1870, the proceeds for individual players, in some cases, approached a working man's wages for an entire year. Well, so the Cincinnati Red Stockings are, like I said, they're not the first professional baseball club. In 1869, there were about a dozen clubs that said, okay, yeah, we'll go that, the path where we're going to be pro because it's before the 69 seasons when they decide to split into these sort of two organizations. But, you know, the, the winners write history, and they were the ones who were most successful. They didn't lose a, a game all season in 1869 and well into 1870. They are extremely successful by that means. Um, they weren't particularly successful in terms of making money, by the way, um, and they had collapsed after the 1870 season. But um, they did show that you could be a really good club if you just paid really good players from wherever they can pick them around the country. Um, We have this wonderful ticket 
from the first game back after they went on a very extended road trip throughout. They went to, uh, so they're, they're based in Cincinnati, right? So they went all the way to the East Coast. They did this East Coast road trip, Baltimore and Philadelphia and New York, of course, and Brooklyn and uh, lots of uh, little towns. And they, and, they, and they barnstormed their way back. And then their first game back was played on July 1st, 1869. And this is a ticket to that game. That ticket's just a little bit over 150 years old. And that's for the Red Stockings. They played actually not a club on that game. It was more of a celebratory game. They played against uh, what will be known as a picked nine. A bunch of different players from clubs played against Cincinnati. In a sense, it's an all-star team from local uh, clubs in, in Cincinnati playing against the Red Stockings. And the Red Stockings crushed them, of course, because they were crushing everyone. Um, but that's, and, uh, that's a ticket from, from the game. This is the New York Clippers, the bound volume of the New York Clippers. So a paper that started in 1853. It's called the oldest. At this point, it's, uh, it's all of uh, what we got here, 16 years old. The oldest American sporting and theatrical journal. It's, a, it's an entertainment weekly. And um, in general, on the first page, they would have a woodcut of someone from vaudeville or, or the theater. This is actually a very a, a rare one because what I'm showing you here from October of 1869 is uh, October 2 to be specific. It shows a woodcut of members of the Cincinnati Red Stockings. Um, but and what I love about this is there was a great little article I stumbled across in the Cincinnati Inquirer. So the New York Clipper is obviously a New York-based paper that it, it was really a little bit more based. It was sports and entertainment and did go around the country. But the Cincinnati Inquirer got a copy of the Clipper. And they said uh, in their October 2 issue, the Red Stocking 9 has been done in ink again, this time by the New York Clipper, which covers its first page with a terrible execution. Not one of the mothers of that doted 9 would be able to recognize a single feature. For the reputation of the club, we hope this barbarous custom will cease. So they panned this, uh, this image, which I actually think is pretty good. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I mean, it's, a, it's an illustration. It's a woodcut. It's not like it's a photographic representation of what these guys look like. But people who know the Cincinnati Wright Stockings would immediately recognize, you know, Harry Wright and George Wright, who are actually both in the Hall of Fame. Or here's Charlie Sweezy, who's a, who was born in San Francisco. That's a San Francisco guy. Andy Leonard, a, a Boston native. Uh, Asa Brainerd, who's from Albany. Hmm. And when I show this to people, I say, you know, you think you've never heard of Acer Brainerd, but you have heard of Acer Brainerd, because it appears, this is not a complete fact, but it, it does appear that his nickname of Ace is why we call a pitcher an Ace. He was the pitcher for a team that didn't lose a game in 1869. He must have been a pretty decent pitcher, and his nickname is Ace has carried on. Huh. A little bit of controversy about that, but uh, it does appear to be the origins of the, the, the term the pitching ace. 1869, 1870s, 80s, it's gaining in popularity. Obviously, the, the media is spreading word. There's these barnstorming tours that are starting to take place. Professional players are coming in into the game and, and uh, I'm assuming becoming somewhat celebrities as a result. Uh, maybe not to the level they are now, but uh, certainly uh, among their own... Uh, fans. So let's talk about the fans. Who's watching these games? I see this ticket is for 50 cents in 1869. That's a substantial amount of money. That um, is a good amount of money. So who's who's watching these games? And can you specifically talk about the uh, the opening of baseball viewership that allowed women to come in? The presence of women is critical in very early mm. baseball. And I'm talking about before 
admissions charged. Okay. Okay. So I'm talking in the eight, 1850s, 1858 was the, the that series of games at the Fashion Racecourse, even before that. And this was very well reported. You read these accounts of paper, uh, of, of matches, and well into the 1860s as well, where they went out of their way to mention the presence of women in attendance. And one of the ideas here was that if women are in attendance, men will be better about behaving themselves. Um, and having the spectators behave gentlemanly is a good thing. It differentiates um, baseball from sports like boxing, where it's a, not just a free-for-all in the ring, it's a free-for-all outside of the ring as well. It also hel helps discourage gambling, because gambling is money, and we want to keep the money away from baseball. So uh, the presence of women is women at the game is a calming, theoretically a calming effect uh, on the game, and gives it a, a certain air. And so that had been around for quite a while. Um, some clubs even went to the, the length of, of creating a special section that was especially for women, really trying to cater to, hey, come to the game. It's okay. The men will be okay. You'll enjoy yourself. So there were there was at least one women's team, women's team from Vassar. Vassar, right. So it, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, there were women teams even before that, before but that's, that. that's an organized team that was a college sport. Uh, also good athletics. So, you know, ba baseball, uh, whether it's women's or, or, or men's teams, um, is viewed as a very good thing to do. You're running around outside, filling up your lungs with uh, air and, and uh, being healthy, and that's a good thing. Uh, and also ties into the whole concept of muscular Christianity, which was a very big deal at that time. But uh, yeah, Vassar was a very progressive school, and um, it still is. And uh, they felt, yeah, it's just nothing wrong with women getting exercise. It's good for the, the, the body, and it's good for the mind. They always had to come back to that, but healthy exercise is also good for the mind. So they did have a game, I believe, uh, excuse me, a, a club in the mid-1860s. There's a photo that's often published showing that's a, that's a photo of a club a, a decade later. Not softball, right? Which right. Which has now become every, you know, most of the women's team, they play softball. They right. They play baseball. Exactly. Well, there is no softball back then. It, that, that variation of baseball um, had not yet been invented. So, yeah, it was, it was baseball. Maybe it looked a little bit different. They were wearing... Uh, lengthy uh, dresses, um, and uh, I don't know whether the rules may have been, been different. But, you know, women playing baseball or more broadly bat and ball games, there's a long history of that well before even the time period that we started with talking about with the Knickerbocker Baseball Club. As a matter of fact, in a lot of ways, this a very popular sport that was played in England called, of all things, baseball, which is where our game comes from. And uh, that was actually very often played. Uh, men and women were playing at the same time. It was only later that the women stopped playing, really, and it became a men's sport, what, almost whatever the level. It was very dominated, obviously, by, by men. But it, yeah, it was very much a sport that everyone played. As often happens when examining history, race plays an important role in the American experience. And that was true of the development of early baseball in New York and across the country. For a long time, researchers were, were looking to find uh, a documented instance of an African-American slave playing baseball while he was in slavery, while he was in bondage. 
And the only one that we have ever found, although there are slant references in some of Frederick Douglass's writings, was a man named Henry Rosecrans, who was a barber, as I recall it, in Kingston, New York. And he recalled playing baseball uh, in the early 1820s. And when we think that New York was one of the later states to ban slavery, not until 1827, that makes him de facto the first African-American in bondage to play baseball. Amateur black teams thrived in Brooklyn in the 1850s. And uh, the Weeksville section, uh, I think, uh, propagated more than one. African-Americans played on integrated clubs um, throughout the countryside in the 1870s. And it wasn't until the backlash of Reconstruction that uh, African-Americans were, in effect, banished from playing on integrated clubs in organized professional leagues. We had African-Americans playing in the major leagues as early as 1879, one in particular for the Providence Grays. And um, African-Americans continued to play in integrated leagues in the, at the minor league levels until 1899. When did the Negro Leagues, when were they established? The Negro Leagues were established largely by Rube Foster in 1920, but there have been prior attempts at creating professional leagues, one in 1887 that is memorable because it lasted only three weeks. We had great players, but if they didn't wish to play on an integrated team and endure the scorn of both teammates and fans, they uh, would barnstorm. So there'd be all black teams that barnstormed, that arranged their own playing schedules, their own dates, and they might play uh, uh, four or five games a week. And they would play against uh, local teams? or Yes, they would play against white teams. There, there was no difficulty with black teams playing against white teams. It was black and white integrated teams at the professional level that became uh, extinct. By the 1880s, baseball is really booming, certainly yes. in the Northeast and New York. Can you talk a little bit about the major leagues and how they were established? I know there were several uh, to begin with, but by the early 20th century, how did uh, Major League Baseball begin to uh, take the form that we know today? Okay, again, <laughs> a story worthy of a book, and several people have written books on the subject. But let me squeeze for you. The first professional league, the first professional salary teams came in in 1869, and these were above board. Then in 1870, they were banned from playing against National Association amateur clubs, and the banning, the prohibition of baseball, as the, as with the prohibition of almost anything, spurs growth. In 1871, professional clubs formed a league called the National Association, which was a cooperative nine of the sort we have discussed earlier in this call, where gate receipts were shared. Some clubs played salaries, some clubs shared receipts. In 1876, the National League created a new model, which was not for the players to control the league and the distribution of receipts, but rather capitalists owning stock in the clubs and paying salaries. And uh, this idea 
was behind all professional leagues that followed. The National League model, experimental, at its debut, uh, turned out to be enormously successful. The National League struggled through the 1870s, which was a time of economic uh, unease, if not panic. And the only club that consistently made money in its first six, seven years was Chicago. In fact, there were no New York clubs in the National There was no New York club and no Philadelphia club in the National League from 1877 until 1883 because those clubs had been banned after the 1876 season. Leaving New York and Philadelphia open uh, to competition, a new league formed called the American Association, which planted clubs in those cities and became a formidable rival, creating a World Series annually in the 1880s against the National League champions. The American Association's challenge to the National League included lower admission prices, beer sold on the grounds, uh, more tolerance of gambling, uh, a working man's uh, approach to the sport. When there was a subsequent challenge to Major League Baseball, by the players objecting to the reserve clause and the constraints on their ability to raise their salaries, a rival league called the Players League pulled all the best talent from both of the other two leagues and existed for one season. The labor challenge eventually fizzled. The National League killed both the Players League and the American Association and became, in the 1890s, a monopoly. So cartels were abroad in the land, and certainly abroad in baseball. It was this cartel approach that gave rise to a new league called the American League in 1900, which was greeted with suspicion, if not outright war. And the National League, as it had in in 1882, when it met a rival in the American Association, fought hard, succumbed, and in the end won, because the competition between the two leagues promoted fan interest. And by the American League's creation, um, obviously there were New York teams in that league. And in 1888, the National League champion was the New York Giants, correct? Correct. The city had two clubs in the early 1880s. It had the New York Giants and the New York Mets. They were not known so much as the Mets, but rather the Metropolitans. Okay. So I see that's where the uh, current Mets must have uh, stolen their name. Um, Let's hope so. That'll be a nice historical touch. My 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 feeling is that uh, the Mets never really adopted the name Metropolitan Baseball Club, hmm. but uh, just took the contraction. So you mentioned the the early World Series between the American Association and the National League in the 1880s. Uh, when did the current uh, World Series begin, and uh, between the American League and the National League? current World Series, we date it to 1903, but historians will date it to 1905. And the reason for this is that there was a war between the American and National Leagues over respecting the reserve clause and respecting the player contracts. So after the 1903 season, it wasn't as if the president of the American League and the president of the National League agreed to have a World Series that forevermore would pit the champions of the two circuits. It was Barney Dreyfus of the Pittsburgh Pirates, and you'll forgive me for forgetting the name of the owner of the Boston Red Sox, who agreed 
to have a best of nine World Series in 1903. It was an agreement between clubs rather than an agreement between leagues. The first World Series to reflect an agreement between leagues was 1905. Okay, and the, and who was in that World Series? In 1905, was the Philadelphia Athletics and the New York Giants. And I believe every game of the series ended in a shutout. It was a five-game series, and Christy Matheson threw three of the Giants' four shutouts. One of the major themes that I've taken away from this episode so far is the creation and molding of stories that support a particular belief, most notably the Abner Doubleday tale. And over time, these stories become ingrained in our history. I definitely agree. And during our tour of the Baseball Hall of Fame, there was one item in particular that best represented this way of thinking. It was the museum's first accessioned item, the Doubleday Baseball, which was discovered in a farmhouse in nearby Fly Creek, New York, in 1935 and dates to the 19th century. Tom Schieber explained its importance before taking us to see the ball on display. The importance of that artifact is that we lend it importance. We have anointed it as a sacred object, uh, or someone anointed it that, and then it kept on continuing to be a venerated sacred object. This is nothing new in sport, by the way, that certain objects take on great meaning and then actually when they're examined, there's no string to really attach that meaning to, to them. Um, it's a great story about history and humans and the way they, they look upon things is you give, it, you give it this meaning. So it was purportedly found in Fly Creek where Abner Graves is from. Somehow that means that, and it, it supposedly was in a house that he lived in. I don't know how that was figured out in the 1930s, but let's assume that it was true. To how that means this was the double day, the ball the double day had, you know. So it looks really old. It's very cool looking. It's in a very cool piece of furniture in a sense that, that houses it. I think it's a fantastic object, but for very different reasons. I yeah. think it because, because of the meaning that we lend to it. Right. And there's, there's great meaning to that a uh, human need, apparently, to, to have an origin story and to maybe have an origin object. Yeah. And this is what we do in museums. Is we tell stories through objects. And, but ultimately, it's the story that's really the important part. But if the object helps excite someone such that they'll listen to the story, then I'm like, well, that's great. Now, I, I never want to mislead anyone. I don't want to get the facts wrong. When we are displaying that ball, we tell people what the real scoop is. But it allows us to tell an interesting story about mythology or about true baseball the origins or non-origins, the evolutionary process of baseball. So if I can still deliver that story even through a mythological object, as long as I'm being honest about it, I'm fine with that. If that's what gets you hooked and interested, great. I'm just seeing a theme with this um, as far as, you know, when we think now, what is American? You know, people say nothing's as American as apple pie and baseball, right? Those right. are the two things. And we were talking about this 60-page report that has everything to do with baseball being American, and, and you bury in it one page where, well, it probably came from England. Right. Uh, and now we have this baseball, right? 
that has this huge, great story. It was in, you know, Graves' house. It was the right time period. This was the kind of ball that, you know, was maybe played by the first game. And, you know, probably maybe 10% of the story is true, but yet people are, you know, in en masse just connected to it. And, and maybe that's not just an American thing, but, you know, all over, people tend to identify with stories that they've heard growing up and objects that, you know, they, they believe something. And, and this is a problem with historians, right? I mean, we, when we debunk those myths, people are angry. That's part of my story. That's part of my, you know, my identity. Uh, I believe, you know, this person was born in my home. You know, right. Abner Doubleday only lived in Boston Spa for a couple months. But he is a Boston Spa native. You know, that's yeah. something that they hold on to. Uh, and there's monuments to him and such. Yeah. So, you know, it, I don't think it's unique. I think it shows us a broader pattern of our historic memory, um, maybe not just as Americans, but, but all over. Yeah. And I, that's a really great point. And, and um, I guess I try to take the positive spin. Not to, debunking is such a harsh word it's so tough I, I think of it more as, as getting more information and I always think more information is good um, but it also makes for a richer story and so I, I think what you find is most historians who get more information or debunk a story or find problems with stories are not trying to quash the story in any way they're actually trying to enrich the story with more information but I would never want the Abner Double story to go away because there's like we keep on talking about there's great meaning to it whether it's uh, that or chopping down a cherry tree, you know, those myths are important parts of who we are and um, should never go away. But it's good to know that they're myths and it's good to know what the kernel of truth is in there, you know, and, and, and it just makes for a richer story. And that's, that's what we do here is try to tell rich stories. So we have the Double Day Baseball uh, here in the very beginnings of the, of the 20th century because that's its true story is a story of of myth making of the importance during a very jingoistic time in American history to make sure that our national pastime truly is a sport that is a, came from our country not somewhere else which isn't really the case but that was important at that time so we want to make sure we're displaying it in the right time frame of our second floor which is sort of a, a history uh, from a timeline standpoint of the game but you can see it's uh, wonderfully well-loved and used baseball broken apart and you know whether it was truly a, a baseball or some ball that was used in a bat and ball game I don't I can't tell you um, but they put it in this uh, display and we talk about it in context of Abner Graves recollections about uh, what occurred in Cooperstown when he was a kid just being here, I am struck by the amount of people on a weekday morning in an, what I consider off-season in upstate New York. Yes. Um, not just tours, but individual people here wandering around the museum, which in most museums, you know, I would expect this to be a slow time. So I'm just wondering, you know, is it is it baseball that is drawing all of these people here? I, we're here during the World Series, so maybe that's something. But um, I'm just wondering, I mean, is it always this busy on a weekday morning? No. Well, uh, you know, during the season, it's, it can be very, very busy. Um, so in this sort of a cusp season, so that, which is 
oftentimes around spring training is a cusp season, and the postseason of Major League Baseball is a, is a cusp season. And no, the weather's still wonderful. It's a little bit chillier than the summertime, but it's not problematic in terms of driving around. No, we de definitely get uh, good crowds, and that's great. I, I mean, the, I think the reason is um, this is this is hallowed ground, not necessarily because baseball was or was not invented here. Uh, we can get past that. But because this is where all of this history is celebrated and showcased in a museum. And many other museums have baseball this or baseball that, but not the entire thing devoted to baseball. And um, don't let anyone fool you, fool you. Baseball is a very popular sport amongst fans today. There's a lot of crying about, oh, it's a, it's a dying sport. Yeah, Lots of people going to games, and lots of people like to watch on TV, and lots of people come to Cooperstown, which you know, is not necessarily easy to get to, but it's certainly worth it to see what are amazing artifacts and, and great stories about baseball and about who we are and our relationship with baseball. So, so why? Why baseball? Why is it baseball that's drawing all of these people here? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is about baseball that made it so lasting. You know, why did... You know why did it last, and not why was it not just a fad? Um, and you know it's probably a lot of different things. This is history; that's how it works, right? A lot of different things conspiring to make it last. But it's, I think it does have a lot to do with. It was a, it's a it's a great sport, the sport that it was even in this early version in the 1850s where it really kind of. Finally, took off at the late late 1850s, early 1860s, where it took off beyond fat and just re and hey, it made it through the Civil War. A lot of things didn't make it through the Civil War, um, uh, but it, it managed to. During, there's a lull period, but then it took off right after that. Um, it must have been a decent sport. I think it's also you know another thing is that it did work well as a social club sport. It did bring, bring people together, and um, you know America's a melting pot. And while there's still a lot of segregation and, and striation of, of classes at that time and to an extent today, um, you still could get a bit of a melting potness around, oh, we're, gonna, we're all going to be members of a club because we are, all have a common interest. And um, um, what we didn't have is, oh, we're all... Uh, we're all living in this small town in Germany, and, and, and so that's what's in common with us. We're a bunch of people who came over. And sometimes you have to find a, a commonality rather than it inherently is there. And, um, and maybe that's what baseball as a social club sport provided was. That's something that we, we really like, and, and that brought people together. Three cheers for Thanks for joining us on the New York Minute in History, a podcast about the history of New York and the unique tales of New Yorkers. I'm Devin Lander. And I'm Lauren Roberts. Stay tuned to WAMCpodcasts.org and the New York State Museum website for more episodes. A New York Minute in History is a production of the New York State Museum, WAMC Northeast Public Radio, and Archivist Media. WAMC's Jim Lavoulis is our producer. Support for the project comes from the William G. Pomeroy Foundation, 
The program is also funded in part by Humanities New York with support from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thanks to John Thorne, the official historian of Major League Baseball, senior curator Tom Schieber, and the staff at the Baseball Hall of Fame, as well as the members of the Fleischmann's Mountain Athletic Club and the Brooklyn Atlantics for all of their help. Also, thank you to WAMC's Jessie King for her work on the Vintage Baseball segment of this episode. Until next time, Excelsior! Excelsior!